Thank you for that good report. Um, in the spirit of evangelism, uh, we're going to be looking at a part two of anxiety uh, the, this morning. Um, we're, we're also going to look back at those same passages we looked at before, so Matthew 6 and Mark 4, if you want to find those. Uh, last time, uh, you may remember, we looked at how Jesus rooted our anxiety problems not in uh, the trouble of our circumstances, but in a lack of faith. And he taught us there then that our ultimate solution is found in gaining a stronger faith. And that's true, uh, but he didn't stop there either. And that's what I want us to consider today. This is, again, it's like a part two for how we fight anxiety, or you could think of it as a, a strategy for how we fight anxiety. And so let's look at what Jesus has to, to add to his teaching We'll look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 25, and we'll focus particularly on verse 31 to 34, and then Mark 4, starting at verse 35, focusing particularly on verse 41. Matthew 6, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And this is what we'll focus on today. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then turn over to Mark 4, starting at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then the verse we'll focus on here. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, as you've gathered your people here, you have a word for them, a word for us, Lord, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, 
you would open our hearts to hear it and that you would transform us so that we would look more and more like your son, that we would be more and more obedient followers, that we would be more and more in awe of the grace that you have shown to us in Christ, and that we would more and more, Lord, come to trust that you have us. And in that, Lord, we can boldly live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Perhaps one of the most painful aspects of anxiety is the helplessness that it conveys. It really does this in two ways. On the one side, it's the sense in which uh, we want to control the future, but as we try, we realize that we can't. And that's, that's painful. It feels like we're being constrained um, and against our will. But it's also sometimes how the Lord reminds us that life is more than food and clothing or whatever we think we need at that moment, that we need Him and that He has us. On the other side, sometimes anxiety also confronts us with a helplessness in which we want to change, but we can't. We want to experience that faith-induced paradigm shift from independence and all its anxieties to Christ-dependence and all its securities. But that transition, that paradigm shift, is hard. It's often slow. It's often intermittent. We know where the switch is. It's simply trusting the God who knows and loves us, i.e. faith. But the switch at least for us, doesn't flip very easily, or when it does flip, it flips back all too easily again. That's where our passage meets us today. It moves on from the ultimate problem and solution to some of the strategies that help us get there. And so let's look at three main ones detailed here, uh, what we could call uh, how you feel, know, and do your way out of anxiety. The first is to feel the right things. I doubt it's a surprise for anyone, but there is a very strong emotional component to anxiety. In fact, when I, when I mention anxiety, it's probably that emotional component, that feeling that is probably the first thing that comes to your mind. And there's good reason for that. It's well documented that the intellectual experience of anxiety unlocks the very same hormones and chemistry in our body that stress does. And as those levels increase, they actually change how our brains function. Instead of progressing from one intellectual link to another, these chemicals cause our temperatures to rise, our blood pressure to spike, um, our bodies to perspire, sometimes uh, that we shake. And before long, as this continues, the intellectual processor part of our brain gives way to the um, fight, flight, freeze, survival instinct part of the brain. And as a result, sometimes the emotional, chemical aspect of our anxiety can get so severe that we can't intellectually process our way out of it. To put it another way, we get so caught up in our anxiety that even though we're doing everything that we know how to think our way out, the natural cycle of how our bodies work is working against us, and so far so that it feels like we're trapped in our anxiety. On the milder side, try forcing yourself to fall asleep when you're anxious, 
or trying to try having try having a really engaged great conversation when you're really really hungry anybody ever experienced the chemistry going on there well that's where we find the disciples on the boat in the midst of this extreme experience of anxiety their survival instinct has taken over and the thinking part of their brain including memory has been shut down for all intents and purposes, everything that they've experienced up to that point no longer exists. It doesn't matter that they've only recently seen Jesus cast out many demons, cleanse a leper, heal a paralyzed man by, of all things, forgiving his sins, something that only God can do. It doesn't matter that he's right there, right now, with them in the boat, or that he appears to be at perfect peace in the boat. Why? Well, because their anxiety is saying that they're going to die, that Jesus doesn't care, that it's all up to them now. They have to figure out a way to get control of this situation or they'll all perish. It's what we might call a panic attack today. But then, all of a sudden, you know the story, uh, something magical happens. Everything changes. And so, what I'd like you to think about is what affects that radical transition for them. Well, the first thing that maybe jumps to your mind is it's the end of the life-threatening storm. That's what they're anxious about, and, that's, and that does happen here, but, but what actually affects the change appears to be something else. You see, despite the narrator's commentary that, that the storm instantly experiences a great calm, that seems to have escaped the disciples. They don't make a single mention of it. Instead, verse 41 says, and they were filled with great fear. Isn't that exactly opposite of what you'd expect? If, if the, if the anxiety-producing event disappears, experiences great calm, they used to be, and they experience a great peace, right? But instead, verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. And the Greek intensifies that even further. It says more woodenly, they were filled with fear, a great fear. Both the verb itself is filling with fear passively, and then the object of the verb is great fear. <laughs> and so what, ha what appears to shift their attention away from a seemingly intractable focus on their anxiety isn't the end of the troublesome circumstance, but the entrance of an even more fearful one. And I think that's something that we can all probably relate to. It's when you're freaking out about, if you're a student, a test, or you're looking for a job, it's the interview. Or if it's money struggles, it's that you've got enough money to buy that food or, or pay your rent. And then you get that phone call that your best friend is in the hospital and they don't know whether he's going to make it or not. When that happens, the new greater concern has the effect of, of distracting us away from the lesser one. And sometimes that's good. We can get so stuck in that irrational cycle of anxiety that we just need some extra help to break loose. Sometimes we also experience this, this, uh, this new perspective where we start to put things back in perspective, which we, we couldn't possibly do in the midst of the heat of our anxiety. But again, something more happens here. The disciples haven't just been distracted by Jesus, 
But the Jesus, who specifically, verse 41, even the wind and the sea obey. I either shift away from the earlier concern, isn't a result only of the dawning of a greater concern, but a greater concern who has the power over their earlier concern. And that has quite a different effect on our anxiety. You see, distraction is temporary relief. Whatever I may have been worried about before is going to be there when I get back. But if I was distracted from a life-threatening storm by renewed fear of the Lord, who in fact reigns over storms, then it won't actually matter if the storm is there when I go back. In other words, this fear doesn't just distract us away from our lesser troubles, but it snaps us out of a delusional world that our anxiety creates into the real world where the Lord reigns over whatever trouble can come to us, whatever fear comes to us. And that brings us to point two, what we need to know. From the perspective of our anxiety, what we need to know is pretty simple. It's how to guarantee the future that we want. If it's food or clothing, it's the lever that we pull that guarantees food or clothing. If it's a spouse or a child or a boss acting a certain way, it's the lever that gives us the control or power to guarantee that. Well, Jesus says we don't need to know. We don't need to know the lever. We don't need to have control. He says, Matthew 6, 31 through 32, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? In other words, what do I need to know in order to control these things, to guarantee these things? Why? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. This means the real missing component in the stew of our anxiety isn't our knowing, our knowing how to secure what we need, but our knowing that the Lord knows how to secure what we need. That's the point of his contrast. The Gentiles, you see, don't know the Lord. And, and they're not knowing the Lord. They know what they need, and they strive after what they need. They strive to control what they need, and all on their own. But here, your heavenly Father knows you need those things. And therefore, not only are you not on your own, but he's got you. And Jesus is really big on what that he's got you means. It means he's, as Jesus is careful to point out, your heavenly Father has you. So what does that mean? Well, our Heavenly Father is the one who Jesus tells us in verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And only a couple of paragraphs later from this passage, chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who seek him? See, that's what we need to know. In contrast to the anxiety that says we need to know how to secure what we need because it's all up to us, Jesus says we need to know that our Heavenly Father knows, and since He knows, we can't possibly go without 
what we actually need. And that brings us to point three. What are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus says, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, from a certain perspective, this makes a whole lot of sense. It builds quite naturally on everything that Jesus has set up to this point. If, if on the highest level, life is more than food and clothing, those things that we think we need, and on the ground level, our Heavenly Father knows what we need and ultimately provides it, then why wouldn't we forgo seeking after those things so that we could seek first His kingdom? And yet, if you've ever come face-to-face with anxiety, you know that that's the most counterintuitive thing and perhaps irrational thing that you could think of. And as a result, Jesus, seek first his kingdom, is really something of a test of our faith. It's, it's an exercise of our faith. Now, just how much so is something that occurred to me somewhat embarrassingly in a recent interchange with my wife. I was uh, or we were, were late for something. I don't remember what we were late for. Um, but if you've been around me for any period of time, you know I, I have trouble with being late. I, it means all kinds of things in my head, which uh, probably merits its own psychological diagnosis. But, um, but anyway, I was late. And as a result, I was anxiously pulling at everything that I could reach in order to make up the difference. I was driving faster than I should have been driving. I was, I was muttering at the drivers that were trying to obstruct me from going where I was going. And I, I was glaring at the lights who weren't cooperating with me. The whole world was against me. It was all up to me. And so what does my wonder, wonderful wife do in that moment? Well, she says in this state of, of really quite a lot of calm, she must not have been with me in the moment. She says, Jeff, I think we're going to be okay. Can you imagine? I mean, the nerve. Well, inside at least, my whole being is screaming, no, we're not going to be okay. We're going to be late. How could we possibly be okay? What in the world are you talking about? And so I heard her, but I, but I just as fast rejected her. When that lightning-fast anxiety computer in my, in my head ran, her statement, it blared false. So I ignored it, and I pressed on. And so have any of you ever been there before? I won't ask you to raise your hand, okay? Um, well, maybe you haven't. It's just, this is just a moment of personal confession, and that's fine too. But, but for some reason, that time, that experience, something else happened to you. In the same moment another switch flipped. It said, the reason that you're rejecting her is because you don't believe her. Or to put it a little more starkly, you've determined that she's wrong. Or, or worse, that she's, she's a liar. And that, that really hit me. And by the grace of God, in that moment, Not every moment, for sure. I I decided to take a little step of faith. Even though my emotions were still hurtling forward, I was wrapped up in how how to make up this time and get there on time so that I wouldn't meet the terrible fate of being late. I decided to believe her. And something happened as a result. 
the Lord began to change my heart. Not instantaneously. All the emotional chemistry was still very much operative in my mind, but it did genuinely begin to happen. I, I started to slow down. I stopped murmuring at the other drivers and glaring at the lights. I gave it over to the Lord's timing. And in the end, um, we arrived some late, but we arrived okay, and we were okay. And so what does that have to do with seeking first his kingdom? Well, in our fits of anxiety, we're really doing much of the same with the Lord. We're saying, Lord, I don't believe you. Lord, I've determined, I've ran your statement, and you're wrong. Or, in the worst case, you know, Lord, you're lying to me. You're giving me some false sense of assurance in a make-believe world. And just like when I did that with my wife, it stuck me. When we do that with the Lord, when we, we really comprehend what we're doing, it ought, to, it ought to stick us. Our conscience ought to say, how dare you? And yet Jesus gives us even more reason for pause. You see, on both sides of this amazing command to seek first his kingdom, we don't find, because those those things that you're concerned about don't actually matter. We don't find that. But instead we find your heavenly Father knows you need them all and all these will be added unto you. In other words, in the generous grace of God, He has seen fit to use the very act of our stepping out in faith, that, that faith, that decision where we, we take the direct controls of our immediate circumstances and we hand those over to the Lord to reinforce our faith, whereby he shows us that he can be trusted with the controls for what we need. Put it another way, since the Lord has clearly told us that he's got us, his call to seek first his kingdom is really a call to decide to trust that he's got you. And that means the hard question in our anxiety is, will you? It's counterintuitive, it's against the whole sweep of your emotions in that moment, and yet Interestingly, is this, this very little faith-based decision that the Lord frequently uses to turn the whole momentum of our anxiety in a Godward direction. And so, this is how you feel no do your way out of anxiety into the peace that a stronger faith instills. It's to fear God, it's to know that He has you, and it's to serve Him. But Jesus goes one step further here, and I think it's really helpful for the whole realm of what he has for us here. He says, verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this tells us two important things. Firstly, I don't know about you, but but I think a lot of us, we worry about tomorrow a lot. The whole idea of tomorrow has long been one of the more puzzling omissions to me in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I get his kingdom, his protection, uh, temptation, his will be done, but this little provision for my daily bread alone, well, that, that sometimes strikes me as too short-sighted. 
I know Jesus isn't requiring us to, to over-restrict or restrict our petitions so far, but the guide, our daily bread alone, seems like too low a bar. In my actual prayer life, and, and probably yours, most of the time it reflects that. For instance, when was the last time that you prayed that you might have enough bread so that you could survive the day? I think if we're honest, we've come so to expect that daily bread that we take it for granted, and as a result, our prayer life is really much more concerned with our daily bread being awesome, being on time, being forever, and beyond that, that I'm going to have a long, joy-filled, to the utmost, maximum, ideal, trouble-free life forever. In other words, today we're not, we're not even concerned about the day's meal, but a perfect day, a perfect tomorrow that will never end. We're concerned about trying to get heaven on earth right now. Well, that tells us something about us and our anxiety. If we, if we keep expanding the circle of what we're looking for, what we're concerned about, if, if we're trying to get heaven on earth right now, we're going to find a whole lot more to worry about. We, we don't have heaven on earth right now. But also, isn't it, isn't it interesting that even though most of us enjoy a higher quality of life, a longer life, and greater security, a, a more heavenly life on earth than probably any other people that's ever lived on the face of the earth, that hasn't been enough to pacify our anxiety and statistically, people today and, and in the United States have more anxiety than people have ever had. And that brings us to the next point. Even within Jesus' minimal bounds of our daily bread, enough food, water, and clothing to survive, Jesus says each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, if you think about that, that's bad news for anxious people. You see, trouble is the stuff anxiety is made of. Wherever you find it, you're going to find anxiety. And the more you find of it, the more you're going to find of anxiety. And that makes sense because trouble means problems. It means the, the potential for pain, suffering. It means the potential for less than. God forbid. But according to our anxiety, trouble also means God's absent. God doesn't care or that, or that God doesn't have the power to do anything about it. Otherwise, he'd get rid of it, right? Because, because if God exists, no trouble. But since he hasn't, well, then that means it's up to us. And therefore, what's an anxious person to do in a world filled with daily trouble? Well, it's what we normally do. It's to strive in our own power to secure some relatively lower grade of anxiety than what we experienced the day before. Or it's to cope. It's just to endure this oscillating levels of anxiety from day to day. And what I'd like you to think about here is that the Jesus doesn't. You remember how he handled the life-threatening storm on the boat. Um, it says specifically that he slept. And when the disciples were wrestling with what they would eat, drink, or wear, Jesus says, do not be anxious. Now, to, now to put that in, in this sense, 
Trouble sufficient for today and more tomorrow isn't alarming to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't think that it should be alarming to us either. And so why? Well, on the one hand, it's because life is genuinely more than these things, but also because God is bigger than and over our trouble. Martin Lloyd-Jones evidently put it this way, no trouble comes across our desk until it goes across his desk. It's what the book of Job is all about. And it's what underlies each of these strategies. The peace they instill isn't dependent on eliminating our trouble, but in remembering the God who secures us in our trouble. And that's what we need to take away. We, we need to remember the God who secures us in our trouble. And that's interestingly, of all people, one of the major lessons that Paul had to learn. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, Paul says, For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I.e., in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of Paul's trouble, severe anxiety, the end of his own strength, and that's when it really gets a whole lot harder, right? When, when we're weak, okay? Paul, the great pillar of the faith, struggles to see how his God is there, how his God cares, how his God can do anything to help them. To put it another way, in the midst of his anxiety, Paul forgets God. He, he concludes that, that God can't help him here. And then he continues, that, that experience of trouble, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who interestingly raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And that means this is really quite similar to what the disciples on the boat experience, who come to rely on the Jesus who has power over the storms. Paul learns that he has a Jesus who has power over death. Paul learns that God was there in and over his trouble, and that changes how he experiences his trouble. Instead of anxiously striving to directly satisfy his trouble-induced insecurity, even when it has to do with something as significant as his own survival, life or death genuinely, he entrusts himself to the Lord. He entrusts that need to the Lord. He hands the controls over to the Lord and then commits himself to the Lord's service. And by the grace of God, that's what the Lord enables us to experience and to do. And so, question for you today is, how are you doing? When you're in trouble, where's God? And I think the truth is oftentimes, if you were to look at our actions, just like Jeremiah 17, I don't think that you would see that we think God has much of anything to do with our trouble or with us in our trouble. And it's because in the heat of our anxiety, we're prone to forget the God we love, but more the mighty God who loves us is bigger than and over our trouble. That's what this fearing, knowing, and doing helps us to remember. We don't have an absentee father, but a heavenly father who loved us at the cost of his son, 
who knows what we need. It has the power to give sight to the blind, to heal the sick, to mobilize the paralyzed, to raise the dead, to forgive sins, and to meet you, to minister to you in whatever trouble you could possibly experience or anxiety that you could have. And so the question we really need to deal with is, just like the question I had to deal with in that interchange with my wife, do you believe him? Will you make the decision to hand over the master controls in your life to his care? Because he says that he's got you. He says that he cares for you, that he loves you at at the cost of his own son and has done that, that he'll never let you go, that he knows what you need better than you do, loves you more than you do, knows every circumstance around you, knows the number of hairs on your head and won't let a single one fall. Will, Will you entrust to him the master controls in your life, and then follow him. How we answer that question is what will really affect how we experience the daily trouble in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, you you are a mighty God. You tell us that you're a mighty God. You've proven to us that you're a mighty God. You have shown us by your Holy Spirit that you are a mighty God, that you love us, that you care for us, that you are all sufficient for us, that whatever we uh, trouble that we experience in this life is, is not evidence that you are not there, Lord, but evidence that you're going to show us how you are there. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to to fear the Lord who has power over all our troubles. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to know that you have us. And we pray, Lord, that you would, in light of that, enable us to take, sometimes they're just that start of a mini step of faith, to decide to trust that you have us. And that in that, Lord, you would confirm our faith. You would reinforce our faith. You would give us a stronger and stronger faith that drives out the insecurity of anxiety and gives us the peace that enables us to boldly persevere for Christ in whatever trouble may come. Please help us to grow, Lord. We need you, and we pray, and we know that you will answer our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.